Well, in 2012, Daniel Day-Lewis won the Academy Award for Best Actor in his portrayal of President Abraham Lincoln. And the seriousness with which he took that role is legendary. He isolated himself for months, read laboriously through pages of firsthand accounts of interactions with the president so he could mimic exactly his gentle tenor and reedy and slightly cracked voice so he could master his shuffling flat-footed step. And then he stayed in character for months all throughout the filming. And so his peers, even today, marvel at his preparation and unwavering commitment to that role of embodying the President of the United States. And if you've seen him in that role, it's a gift to all those who see it. Now, 12 years earlier, Brendan Fraser, the actor from such hits as Encino Man and the Mummy, <laughs> also portrayed Abraham Lincoln in the romantic comedy Bedazzled. Critics were less complimentary of that film, <laughs> describing it as, quote, weak, pitiful, and persistently unfunny. <laughs> now, while Brendan Fraser undoubtedly possesses talent, critics were not as convinced by his performance, largely due to the fact that he did not embrace that role with the same seriousness as a Daniel Day-Lewis, and therefore it was a less transporting performance as he portrayed the 16th president of the United States. Now, why tell you all that? For this reason, if you're just joining us, we've been in the midst of a series called Don't Waste Your Life. And we've been talking about how using and maximizing every moment God's given us in this life for his glory and other people's good. And you go, well, how do I measure whether or not I'm wasting my life or not? One way to evaluate it is to look at how seriously I take the roles God has given me in life. And the reality is all of us are not encompassed by one singular role, but God has given you multiple roles you fill. All of us are a child in a family. All of us are employees. All of us are stewards of resources of health and time and money, be they many or few resources. All of us have these roles God has given us, and we can evaluate, have I been a success in life or have I wasted my life based on the seriousness with which I commit myself to the roles I've been given by God? And so today we're talking about how to not waste our life and we're looking at one specific role that though we're in a variety of different situations in life, all of us have grown up in different ways, there's one role that all of us in this room have filled and I don't know if sometimes we've seriously thought about how to fill that role well. And the role is we are all members of a family. And so today is about don't waste your family. Now, a natural assumption is when I say that, this is about don't waste your family, a lot of people, I think, would think we're going to talk about parenting, which would be a legitimate way to go. There's probably a lot of parents in this room. A lot of you have little kids. But I would dare say a larger percent of us in this room are children. 100% of us came from somebody. It's a fact. So I want to focus today on our family of origin because no matter how far away you've moved from those people, all of us have been profoundly impacted by our families. So for me, I was looking through fam old family photos the other day, and I remember pulling one out, and I was like, I do not recall this moment. Like, when was I standing by a horse? And then I remember it dawned on me, wait a second, that's my father! And I was like, ah! I am my father's son. I am much more like him 
then I've wanted to admit at times his influence has marked me. And it's the same with all of us. For better or for worse, you've been deeply impacted by those people you grow up with. And if I was to ask you your life story, many of your profoundest joys and greatest pains came from those people. Many of you have been to counseling. And it probably hasn't been because you have an annoying neighbor. It's probably been because you're trying to unwind the complexities of the emotional experiences you had as a kid, right? And so many of us, when we talk about our family of origin, some of you go, I don't want to talk about that. I want to get away from that. And some of you have maybe had great family experiences, and you're like, oh, I've been waiting to learn new ways I can honor my parents. Fantastic. And, and that's great. Congratulations. That's amazing. But for many of us, we're like the comedian George Burns that says, happiness is having a large, loving caring, close-knit family in another city. (laughs) And you go, I wanted to get away from these people, but you're forever bound to your family. And let me say this, the ongoing quality of your relationship with God and your success or failure in life is extricably linked to those people. 1 Peter chapter 3, it says, Husbands, live with your lives in an understanding way so that your prayers may not be hindered. God says, Husband, you be understanding of the sensitivities of your wife, and you're not willing to understand her. I don't want to hear from you. And so God marks us with that. And some of you go, well, of course, that's husband and wife. You have to live together. But you're talking about my parents, and I'm an adult. Well, read down to 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy 5, the Apostle Paul is talking to Timothy about how to instruct his church about how people were to treat their aging parents. And he says, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So you're talking about adults and their aging parents. And Paul defines godliness as caring for your aging parents. I wonder if you've ever defined godliness that way. And then he goes on and says, and if you don't provide for your relatives, especially members of your household, you've denied the faith and and are worse than an unbeliever. I don't even know fully what that means, but it sounds terrible. (laughs) But what he's saying is God so inextricably links faith in him and grace shown to your biological family. That he says, if you don't care for these people, I wonder if you ever really know me. So we got to get this right. This is a role God takes very seriously. Forever you are bound to these people and God will evaluate your life based on your treatment of them. And yet some of you go, why would he do that? Ben, my family are not the people I would naturally hang out with. Like the people I've selected to hang with are nothing like them. Why would God bind me up to these people every holiday season? Well, let me give you, there's two overarching statements I want to put over this talk. And one of them is that God is sovereign over your family. It's his idea. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, Paul launches into a prayer. And at the very outset, he says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He says family is God's idea. And it's a great idea. The original design of family 
was an amazing idea. When God built humanity, he built a man and woman. He came up with an idea called sex, which is fantastic. And he made that the means by which we create other people. That's awesome. And then he said, we're going to create these nuclear families where an older man and an older woman model masculinity and femininity to the younger generation. That's a great idea. And so his first command to them in Genesis 1 was, be fruitful and multiply. My children's Bible I read to my kids translates that as, Have babies, is how the guy says it. What a great idea. And then when God planted them in the garden in Genesis chapter 2, it says he looked at the man and he said, cultivate. And that word cultivate means what? You take raw materials and you situate them in a way so that life can maximally flourish. That's what God was doing in Genesis 1 and 2. Building the structures of the earth so that life could flourish. And then he looks at the man and says, you do the same. Cultivate. Look at the life I have given you influence over and create structures of time, energy, resources so that life can flourish. And that's what good parents do. They create a home life where you as a child can flourish under God. You can see your gifts. They can fan them into flame and you can serve the common good. The family was a great idea. But it got messed up from the beginning. God designed family for cultivation, but sin distorted family into chaos. And so for Eve, rather than helping Adam lead, she began to tempt Adam to go towards a self-absorbed expression. Adam, rather than protecting his family, as was his call from God, had a passivity letting his wife go down a trail she was never meant to go. And you see that, man, where they once had vulnerability in their family, it was instantly replaced with shame and blame. And you see, by the time they have their first children, what happens? One son murders the other. It's fascinating, as I've counseled people throughout the years, when they talk about the pain of their childhood, oftentimes the way people talk about it is as an isolating thing. You don't understand the pain my family's in. You don't know what my family's like. And they see the pain they've experienced in their family as something that isolates them from the rest of humanity. But let me tell you something. The very first nuclear family of four people, one murdered the other. Families have been broken from the jump. So the brokenness of your family does not isolate you. It connects you to the whole human story. Not every family gets joy. Every family gets pain. And I'm not saying that to minimize the pain you've been through. I'm saying that to maximize how broken this world is. And if you read through the Old Testament, look at it, man. You have family members murdering one another, swindling one another in business, sexually uh, harming one another. You see all kinds of brokenness in the family. It's a horrible, distorted thing. And so you look at it, and many of you go, that's my experience. They didn't cultivate me. It was chaos. That's why I got out of there. And yet... As the Bible continues, you see Adam and Eve have another son, Seth, and Seth calls on the name of the Lord. And you see he raises Enosh to fear the Lord, and then on through Noah, and a God, godly grace gets sewn back into the family story. And then when God gets to Abraham, he says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through you, every family on the earth will be blessed. Family was meant for cultivation. It was broken into chaos, but God redeems the family unit as a means of redemption. 
grace is going to start in a little family and it's going to become a wave that crashes into every family. And some of you have watched your families come to know and embrace the grace of God through Jesus, the descendant of Abraham. Others of you, maybe you're the only one in your family who the grace of God has touched down on. But God has not given up on family, and he wants to use you and your family. God is sovereign over family, and not just the institution, but your particular one. So Ephesians chapter 3.14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family on earth is named. What he means by that is God is the source of every family. So your particular family is not an accident. It's not just that God ordained the institution and somehow you ended up with these crises. It's that God ordained your family. So yeah, maybe your mom's roommate in college introduced you to your dad at a bar and that's how they met, but it was God that arranged the meeting. You're in that particular family on purpose. And some of you may go, well, why did he do that? Why put me with these people? Well, let me tell you one of the implications of understanding that God is sovereign over your family. If you look at Paul's prayer, he calls God the God from whom every family is named. And then listen to a prayer. He says he prays to that God who made your family that according to the riches of his glory, he would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit and your inner being that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, that being rooted and grounded in love, you might have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You go, why are you starting here, Ben? For this reason, what the Bible is trying to tell you is that the reality is the God whose love cannot be measured, that you can't get your arms around the height and breadth of it, the God whose love will come crashing into your life, forgive your past, make you a child of God, that loving God rules over your family, rules over your life put you in that family. And when you realize that, the God who loves that much put me in this family, it instantly liberates you from sin-justifying victimhood. And it gives you the compassion to love the people in your family, whether they filled their roles well or not. You see it in Joseph in the Old Testament. Young Joseph had a bunch of older brothers, didn't like him. There was some jealousy in there, which happens when your dad has like four wives uh, at once creates some complexity, right? <laughs> they hated little Joe. He showed up to check on them while they were shepherding, and what did they do? They grabbed Joseph and threw him in an empty pit, and then he had to sit down there in that pit while he listened to his brothers debate whether or not they were going to murder him. And then if you keep reading Genesis, it said, and then they sat down to eat. They were casual enough about talking about how little his life meant that they're eating sandwiches while they're talking about it while he's down there in a well, scared to death as a kid. Then they see a caravan go by, and they say, why don't we just sell them? And so they sell their brother into slavery. You think that's going to cause some psychological problems? He becomes a slave, gets wrongly accused of a crime, and gets put in prison, gets left in prison for a long time, Finally, by the grace of God, he gets out and he gets a job in the household of Pharaoh in Egypt and begins to rise in Egypt. But even as he's approaching his 40s, he has a son and he names his firstborn Manasseh, which means God has made me forget all my hardship and my father's house. You think he's still dealing with unresolved issues in his 40s? 
He named his kid, forget you, family. <laughs> yes, yeah, by very definition, I don't know that you have. Let's not quibble on it. Clearly, you're working through some things. <laughs> and you see, into his 30s and 40s, there's a pain lodged in the heart that some of you know really well about the damage that can be done to you that you don't reconcile way into your adult life. But then what happens? He gets dreams of how to take care of Egypt in the midst of a famine. He gets to be a blessing to a nation right when his family's in a region that begins to starve. And so while he's ruling over Egypt, his family comes, and when he intersects with his brothers, he sees that the grace of God has been working on them and breaking their hearts, that God is changing them. And what happens in that moment? Joseph looks at the family members who hurt him, and as they realize this is the Joseph we sold, and they break down in shame and terror and weep in his presence, he says to them in Genesis 45, don't be distressed, don't be angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me here before you to preserve your life. For the famine has been in this land for two years, yet five years there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me father to Pharaoh, lord over all his house, and ruler over the land of Egypt. Do you see what's happening there? As he gets older, he realizes, yes, my family hurt me, and I don't have to call it anything else than that, but they don't ultimately control my story. God does. And God is using my story to weave grace into this world and to be a voice of grace and a conduit of grace back into this very family that hurt me. And my question to you is, are you willing to be a conduit of grace to those people? You will be when you realize it's God who reigns over your story, not them. You will be. It will give you the compassion to see them, not as the rulers of the story who hurt you, but as human beings in God's image, broken because of sin, and desperately in need of his grace. For me, I remember when I was a kid, I came from a divorced home, and like a lot of people in my generation, there's bitterness that can get in your heart about that, and I was, had a lot of anger at my dad. And I remember for me, through much of high school and college, there was just, I let it fester, and the music of the day didn't help. Grunge was all about how pissed we were at our dads, you know what I mean? Just kind of fueled the fire. That's sort of where I lived, and there's something really empowering about that kind of anger. Until I remember I found one of my dad's journals. I'm not saying it's right or wrong to read your father's journal. I'm just telling you what happened. <laughs> and I saw in one of his journals, he wasn't saying anything harsh about me. But my dad, who I realized had a very different spiritual upbringing from me, didn't have anywhere near the Christian resources I had as a kid. I was the closest believer in his proximity on a regular basis. And he felt judged by me. And he was wrestling with the shame he felt about not living up to, to the expectations of his son. And I had never thought before that about the influence I brought in the room. But I realized in that moment, even though there was some brokenness in my family, God sent people to sweetly bring me to Jesus. God gave my mom a robust faith to guide our children into love for God. And I know him. And in that moment, I saw my dad not as this figure looming over my story like a dark cloud, but as a man who didn't get to know God like I did as a kid. And yeah, I made some bad choices, but can the grace of God extend through me to him? And as I saw God ruling over my story, I saw my dad as someone potentially as a recipient of my compassion. God is sovereign over your family. 
And when you realize that, you'll begin to understand that your spiritual family can give you the resources to bless your biological one. Jesus did it, right? When he began his earthly ministry, do you remember? It kicks off. I'm the son of God, y'all. Starts telling people that. Starts doing miracle. He gets a big crowd. And do you remember what happens? Right when the crowds are beginning to blow up, it says his family was in the back and they came to get him for they were saying he's out of his mind. They weren't just thinking it. They showed up at the service in the back and going, I'm so sorry. When his blood sugar gets low, he thinks he's deity. Jesus, get down from there. And you're Jesus going, Mom, I just, okay, stop, right? You see, later in his ministry, his brothers mock him. They say, why don't you go up to Jerusalem? That's where all the heroes go because they didn't believe his claims to be Messiah. So they went from thinking he was crazy to thinking he was a fool and making fun of him. Right? And yet, when Paul passes along to us that which is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, was raised from the dead, he said he visited his disciples, and then it says, and he visited James. He visited his brother, the one who had mocked him, the one who had ridiculed him. Jesus made a personal visit to James to rub it in his face. Son of God now, bro. <laughs> no, I think it was to offer him grace. And we have a book written by James in our Bible talking about how grace can change a human life. Why? Because it happened to him through his brother that God rescues us and makes us conduits of his grace and the resources of your godly family can help you love your biological one. That's the story of Ephesians. In Ephesians 1 through 3, which we didn't read all of it, there's only one command. Did you know that? It's the word remember. There's no commands in Ephesians 1 through 3. All Ephesians 1 through 3 is, is about how much God loves you, how when you were dead, he made you alive. When you were lost, he brought you in. When you were abandoned, he made you part of his family. It's about the inexhaustible love and grace of God through his son, Jesus Christ. And then he prays this prayer. I just pray God would strengthen you a little bit that you would understand how vast the love of your heavenly father is. And then at this verse, we pivot into the back half of the book and it says, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of this great calling. And you get 41 commands. Embrace the love of your spiritual family. Now step out and love the world. And the rest of Ephesians is built around the word walk, which shows up five times of how to walk with God. We're not going to get into all five, but the fifth one is to walk with wisdom, making the most of your every opportunity. And to walk in wisdom, it says to walk by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when it talks about how to walk by the Holy Spirit, it starts to tell us what walking in the Spirit looks like. It looks like addressing one another in psalms and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord, giving thanks always to God your Father, and submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ, children to your parents. And so what it says, when you know God and are filled with the Spirit of God, God then gives you a role to fill. And so God is sovereign over my family, and now I am steward of a role in that family. You have the inexhaustible love of God. Walk with wisdom, making the most of your time. His very spirit fills you. Therefore, children, obey your parents. And so my call to us today is, will you take that up? When you see God is sovereign over your family, will you embrace the stewardship God's given you? He's looked at you and said, while you're alive, I want you to love these people. I'm giving you these people. I know your grandpa's difficult. I made him. I totally get what's going on there. Can you love him? I know mom's like that. I'm working on her. But will you love her? I'm not asking you to critique her role. I'm asking you to fill yours. 
And so to give us the sentence to come around like we've been doing in this series, I would say don't waste your family by taking up your role in cultivating a culture of honor in which all in the family can flourish under God. Don't waste your family by taking up your role in cultivating a culture of honor in which all the family can flourish under God. And so children, there's ways to do that. It says children obey your parents. And that word children is not a word about age. The word literally means to come from some parents. So it doesn't matter how old you are. And it says obey them in the Lord. That strengthens it. Obey your parents as a function of you obeying God. It's woven together forever. And he says for this is right. And then he quotes the Old Testament. Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you and you live long in the land. That's not a threat where he says honor your parents or else you'll get struck by lightning. He said that in the Old Testament to say the family is the structure upon which society stands. And so when you honor your parents, you preserve the structure and you'll live long in your land. And we're seeing that. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services says the poverty rate among children in fatherless homes is 47%. 47%. It's 10% in two-parent homes. That when the family unit breaks, society breaks financially. And then you can look, and I won't go into all of it, staggering amounts of research which correlates everything from drug use to early sexual debuts to suicide rates to lower educational achievements based on the breakdown of the family. We need strong families so we can dwell long in this land. And so we need to take up our roles in the family seriously, not as the savior of your family. You're not that but as the steward of your role in the family. So as a child, let's get into some implications before we close here. How can you take up your role as a child of some parents in your family? How can you do that? Well, he gives us two words, obey and honor. And that word obey, just to give you a little Greek, like ooh, it combines two words, listen and under. So children can cultivate a culture of honor in your family by listening attentively. And that counts for older parents too. So if you have an inclination when you talk to your parents to go, I know, I know, I know, mom, I'm an adult. <laughs> that says more about your impatience than it does about their nagging. Right? That we can honor our parents, this role God created, and we can fill our role as children by listening to them attentively. Come into your parents' circle as a learner. Come as a learner. I wish I had done this more with my father. My father passed away a few months ago. And as I was going through his belongings, I found his journal. And my dad, who, like I said, did not have the spiritual upbringing I did, as I looked through his journal, even in some difficult moments in his life, he would write out prayers for his children. And that challenged me. I'm a pastor, and I don't do that. And I looked at this and was like, I thought I was varsity. And this guy is showing me how it's done. I wish I would have come to my father as a learner spiritually. I could have learned more from him, and I wish I would have done that. Listen attentively to your parents. They still have some things to teach you, even in their old age. And then it says, listen under. And so I would say, act responsively. Put yourself in a position when you're around your parents to respond to them. Be inclined in your heart to do what they say. Jesus did that as an adult with Mary. Do you remember his, when his ministry started? He was at a wedding that ran out of wine. That's their problem. Mary came up to him and said, hey, Jesus, they're out of wine. So I told them you knew something about that. <laughs> and what did Jesus say? 
woman, it's, it's not my time. Like there was a rollout plan, right? Father and I had worked it out. But did he tell his mom, mom, stop being crazy, I'm an adult. You know, he was like, give me some water. Wine, I right, distributed to them. Boys, let's get out of here. All right, and he did it. <laughs> Thereby justifying wine drinking to generations of college kids and so forth. But anyway, <laughs> as a child in your family, you can cultivate honor. How? By being responsive in your heart to your parents. I used to tell this to college students all the time. It was a normal thing for me, a breakaway, for this to happen, that a kid would come to college and their faith would get radically lit on fire in college. And they would come to me disturbed. They're like, man, in college, I suddenly understood what God was about, what Jesus was about, and I go home and my family's not doing any of that. And so I'm trying to tell my parents how to live right, and they're being all resistant to it, and I don't get what their problem is, and I'm like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, stop, 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 stop. I said, you walked away from their house for a hot minute, and you come back and start telling them how to run things? I said, that doesn't honor them. I said, stop the sermons. And they're like, well, I know, but I know so much. I'm like, and it, yeah, I know, but just stop them. I said, don't, don't preach to your parents. Preaching up usually doesn't go well. I said, let me tell you something to do as a college student. When you go home over the holidays, do the dishes without being asked. And then mow the yard. And I promise you, your atheist parents will believe there's a God in heaven. <laughs> And let me tell you something. Some of you, you go, Ben, my family doesn't deserve it. Of course they don't. No, but you're not doing it for them. You do it in the Lord. The Lord has given you the resources to bless them, and you can do it, right? You can do it. If Jesus Christ, while he was dying for the sins of the world, stripped naked and beaten on a cross, can, as one of his last acts, look down and make sure his mother is taken care of by his disciples, you can call your mom. You're not that busy. So listen attentively to them. Respond to them. Stay connected to your aging parents and honor them. Speak graciously to them. That's part of this, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Speak graciously to your parents. Don't underestimate their need to see themselves replicated in you. And so you can speak kindly to them. And not just speak graciously, but speak gratefully to them. A way to honor them is to thank them for what they've done in their life. And you may go, I don't know what to do with that. For me, my grandfather and I did not have a lot of touch points in life. We never really knew how to talk to each other. But my grandfather had served in World War II, and though he never wanted to talk about it, he always had little pictures and little books and little things about World War II around him. So I started reading about World War II because I wanted to celebrate all I could celebrate in his life. And I remember once we sat at his kitchen table, and we never really sat and talked, but I was showing him Google Earth because it was brand new. And I said, look, you can kind of zoom around and you can see. I remember you saying you flew bombers in this area. I was doing that. And he just sat next to me, and he was like, take it to, and he like named some coordinates. I'm like, uh, I don't know how to do, I don't know longitude and longitude. See, I don't know what I'm doing. You're going to have to show me. And so he took me to Iceland. And we dropped Google Maps into this little look, and he started showing me how he flew over and under and around hills to land on airstrips that are still there, unmarked by Google Earth. And then he starts taking me to four or five different airstrips he was flying into and started telling stories. And as he was telling stories, his children began to gather around, and his grandchildren began to gather around, because he never talked like that. And I realized by being grateful for what he had done in World War II and being gracious to him, we opened a door for connection we didn't have before when all we focused on were the things we disagreed on. 
And so the reality is you can thank your parents. And even if you say, I don't have anything to thank them for, the root of the word parent means to come into existence. And so you can thank them for that. I read Steve Jobs' biography, and his parents gave him up when he was young, and he went on a search to find his biological mother. And the biographer asked him why, and he said, I wanted to thank her for not aborting me. That's all. He said, because I'm assuming she was under great duress as a young woman, and I want to thank her. And maybe for you that's as far as you can get, but that's a good start. Or if you're in high school or junior high, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has just put out a report that to raise a child from age 0 to 18 cost a quarter of a million dollars. So at lunch today, thank your parents <laughs> for dropping a quarter of a mil on you. You've never dropped that amount of money on anybody. <laughs> parents, don't remind them of that. You'll, you'll kill the moment. Let them do it. Let them do it. For parents, let's go real quick here. For parents, it says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let me talk about how we can be good parents. Parents can cultivate a culture of honor, one, by not being overbearing. How do you provoke a child for anger? You be overbearing. Harsh demands, constant nagging, pressure to achieve, nitpicking their decisions. It's interesting. Holly Schriffen, who's a psychologist at the University of Mary Washington, put out a report in the Journal of Child and Family Services that says the overwhelming evidence has shown that overly involved grown-up parents in adult children's lives do more harm than good. Every person has three basic needs in order to be happy, to feel autonomous, to be competent, and to be connected to others. And helicopter parenting into adulthood decreases a child's ability to feel autonomous, feel competent, and feel connected, and so that incompetence leads to depression. So if you're an adult and have adult kids, it's time to become less commanding and more counsel. Read the book of Proverbs. The dad in the book of Proverbs does not demand and command. He entreats and begs. And the child he's talking to was probably around 13. So as your child grows up, the text says to bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. That means you're raising them to be peers. And you become less of a commander and more of an advisor. So we avoid being overbearing, but we also avoid disappearing. One of the most painful things a parent can do to a child is to step out of their life altogether. McGill University in Canada published their findings that growing up without a father alters the structure of the brain of children and makes them more aggressive and angry. There's an old African proverb about that that says if we don't enculturate the children, they'll burn the village down. You can frustrate and provoke your children to anger by being overbearing or by disappearing. Both of those can be equally painful. For me, the challenge is I live in my home with my kids, but I remember talking with a guy that has kids around my kid's age, and he said, dude, I was so challenged the other day. I got home, he said, and my, like, five-year-old was being bananas. I mean, going crazy. And he said, finally, at one moment, I looked at her and was like, what's the matter with you? Why are you acting like this? And he said, in a moment of frustration, she just said, I don't have anyone to play with. And if you put your phone down and play with me, maybe I wouldn't be like this. You know, he said part of him was like, insubordinate, you know, and wanted to punish her for that. But it was hard to do when he had the phone in his hand and was like, she has a point. And he said he realized in his home, a common MO was for my wife and I to be on our phones in the kitchen while the kids are doing something. And that broke his heart and it broke mine. He said, I don't want my kids' childhood memories. You know, memory is not linear. It comes in little flashes. 
That's all you get. I don't want my kids' flashes of their childhood memory to be dad too busy for them because he's on his phone checking his Instagram. So when I get home, the phone goes away. I want their memories to be of a dad who was on the floor with them. I want them to know their dad loved them. I want them to be easy to believe their sovereign father in heaven loves them because they saw it in their father. And so for me, I don't want to disappear on them into the portal of my screen. Some of us, the most godly thing we'll do is start putting them down when we go home. And I think we can cultivate a culture of honor with our kids by advising, bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That can even mean sharing your failures, telling them where you did it wrong. And then I would say encouraging. I would challenge you parents, don't underestimate, even if you have adult children, their need to hear you say you believe in them. They need that. They need to hear the voice of their parent speaking into their life. One of our worship leaders here, Jeff Johnson, put it out on Instagram the other day. He said, be the person you needed when you were younger. And I remember reading that and I was like, a math tutor? I don't, I don't want to be that. But then I realized what he meant. All of us, when we were younger, wanted someone to believe in us and to tell us the good they saw in us. Be that. Be that for the people in your family. Be that for your brothers and sisters and siblings. Be the voice that breathes life into them, and you'll create a culture of honor in your family. And the last thing I would do to close that is I would say, don't, don't put it off. Don't put it off. For me, towards the end of my father's life, he was making some health decisions that, that were not good, that were going to end his life pretty prematurely. And I would periodically drive down there and I remember at one moment in frustration, I saw the deterioration of his health and his unwillingness to make certain changes, and I stormed out of the house, so furious. And I remember I walked out to the car, and I said, I'm done with him. I'm done with him. But I called a friend of mine, an, an older spiritual brother in Jesus, who had lost his parents. And he said, Ben, I'm not going to tell you what to do. And he said, but let me tell you something. All this anger you feel, all this frustration in this moment, it's valid. He said, but when your dad dies, he said, all that is going to go away. He said, and at the end of the day, what's going to remain is you're going to say, as his son and as a Christian, what will I wish I would have done? He said, and Ben, I don't want you to focus on what your dad was or wasn't. I want you to focus on what would a good son do in this moment? What would a Christian do for any human being in this moment? And that helped me. It helped me in that moment get my dad in the car and drive him to the hospital, even though he continued to refuse care. It helped me to drive back down there with him later and to quit giving him sermons, but to come and kneel by his bed and tell him, I forgive you, and I love you, and I hope you'll make peace with God. And so when I got the call that he died, I remember I sat there and asked myself the question, do I feel regret? Because I know a lot of people that do. And I realized I don't. I don't. And some of you maybe have that regret. And let me tell you something. The grace of God can come crashing into that moment too. You're not too far gone. But something I'm deeply grateful for three months ago when I buried my father was that I was able to say those things that people wish they would have said at funerals. Don't wait. Tell them the good they've put in your life. Tell them the things you see in them that are beautiful. Speak from your heart about you wish that was true for them. Even if you know they're going to reject it, I know they won't listen to me. Say it anyway because you'll want to know, I did my role as a son. I did my role as a Christian to honor them and to tell them about a father God who sent his son to redeem even them. 
Fill your role for the glory of God and the good of your family. I promise you, when you come to the end of your days, you'll be glad you took that role seriously. And you'll be thankful that your Father in heaven gave you the resources to bless your biological family.